0: Hey everybody, my name is Kai Savaz. Welcome to a brand new Film Music Media Conversation. I'm so excited to be here with the one and only uh, Paul Haslinger. Paul, how are you doing today? Very good. Glad to be here, Kai. A pleasure. Yes, it's such it's so exciting to get to talk to you. So uh, recently I've been starting with this question just to kind of set the, the stage for our talk. And it's it comes across as a simple question, but it can have so many different meanings and, and however you take it. So however you take it as a person, as an artist, as a storyteller, uh, as a musician, I'm curious, what does music uh, mean to you?
1: Well, I, uh, I think uh, that's sort of a... Uh, it changes over time, obviously, right? But if I had sure. to bring it down to one thing, then I I think the reason uh, people get stuck with music or I got stuck with music is because there's a elusive quality in it. It's something you never can... Uh, yeah, hundred percent grab but you can spend your life figuring out things so you keep discovering things and then you think you can grab it and just as you grab it it will go away again and, and play another trick on you and you'll have to then try the chasing process again so it's something that you can spend a whole life investigating and learning about and discovering and having these little uh satisfying moments where you think you've got it and then two weeks later you Figure out that you didn't get it, but you have to look into something else. So it keeps life interesting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great answer. I love that. So um, I'm curious if if we, you know, you've had such a, you know, rich career through working with Tangerine Dream and your scoring and everything. But if you go back to your childhood, do you remember kind of the moment? Was there like a catalyst moment for you that was like something that happened where you're like, oh, I really love music. I really love sound or whatever. Was there anything that triggered it, or did it just happen kind of over time as you got older?
1: Um, I think sort of a a fascination uh, with music definitely grows over time Um, Mm -hmm. also as you become sort of conscious of things you know as a kid you just want to play and and have fun and then over time a certain recognition process starts as to what's actually happening and I think I noticed pretty early on that music has a peculiar effect on people Uh, starting with yourself um, uh it's a good therapy tool and whatnot but yeah. also you notice that sometimes when you play something uh it has an effect on other people unlike other effects you know you can you have sort of analysis and calculated effects and music is a little bit out of bounds you can't yes <laughs> it's yeah. sort of not predictable it's not plannable but when it happens it's pretty impressive you know that uh, people can be that moved by something that is, like I said, elusive. It's not. Uh, it's not a program. It's uh, it's something that happens in a certain moment, and I think I I noticed this uh, and I weaponized it pretty quickly. You know, because you could. Uh, uh, it works the same uh, on uh, potential girlfriends as it works on people that educate you, or or any other social situation that you get into, and uh, and. You keep going after it, you know, and uh, especially in that, you know, if you, when you're starting out, you think uh, uh, sky's the limit, and you can do anything uh, that you like. Uh, so you you just jump in the pool and and. Splash around a whole lot, and then later you recognize that maybe you you can't do everything you want. <laughs> you just yeah. got to stick to a few things.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of doing everything you want, I mean, I feel like you have done. I mean, you've got you've you've gone through so many different parts of of your career. So I'm curious when you start. You know, when you first kind of got together and with Tangerine Dream was. Was when they started scoring films kind of the first introduction to to the group, to you, that you got introduced to film music or was film music on your radar even before all that?
1: Well, if you don't count me stealing my dad's Super 8 camera and uh, taking it to Greece and and doing some videos and making some uh, music for that, then yes, Tangerine Dream was the first professional um, uh, experience. And uh, I came in at an uh, interesting uh, point in time, uh, 80s, uh, which was sort of the switch over to the digital world, but it hadn't really fully happened yet. We were in the middle of that transition. And I came in as sort of the Atari kid, you know, (laughs) that uh, tried to push that side of things. But when we scored the first films, I was still at the playbacks sitting at the tape machine with a marker on the tape and then hitting the start button at the signal that Chris gave me. And that's how we, landed. there was no synchronization, <laughs> you know? So the, yeah. the digital, the computer side, the sequences were synchronized, but the tape that we recorded to was not synchronized. That's how backwards it was in the early days. Wow. <laughs>
0: that's amazing. <laughs> well, I'm curious, like you mentioned kind of how, you know, technology was changing and and of course, you're you're very well known for use of your electronics and everything. Was it always a? Because I always feel like there's this argument that's kind of pointless between like you know synth and electronic music and then orchestral and, and traditional classical or, or you know you know something like that. Was there a lot of uh, battling going on in, in the film industry back then where it's like oh it's like synth music coming in to replace everything? Was there kind of an aversion adver- to it or was it kind of embraced like you know since there was a lot of other great artists like Giorgio Moroder and all these you know was coming up in the late 80s and kind of since stuff started coming in or was it kind of like abrasive uh
1: it was a uh uh, i came in at a not very opportune moment which was the moment just after the first wave of electronic scores had hit and the debate started uh yeah because there were a lot of copycats, and there were a lot of poor-sounding electronic scores as a result. Everybody wanted to jump on the bandwagon, mm. but very few people actually knew how to do something original. They were just copying the likes of uh, Van or, or Tangerine Dream, and right. And so electronic music got a a bad rap. And uh, you know, ironically, the first one of the first uh, scoring projects I got involved with was Legend with Lee Scott. Right. And Ridley Scott uh, Legend was uh, sort of the prime example of that uh, dispute, because as you remember, there was a Tangerine Dream score for the U.S. It was Jerry Goldsmith's score first recorded that then was used for the rest of the release around the world. And it was the center of the debate, this score, you know, where people yeah. said this This is the future of scoring and said, no, this is not music and uh, and you know what Jerry did was the the proper way of scoring a film and uh, so past that you know electronics still had its place but it was something you would rather not mention and so when I started here in the 90s I did not really derive much benefits from the fact that I was in Tangerine Dream. Fast forward 30 years to now after Stranger Things Tangerine Dream is the best thing you can mention right? It's all you were in Tangerine Dream it's amazing but when I when I first got to Hollywood, uh, you better not mention uh, Tangerine Dream because it had a bad rap at the time.
0: Wow. That's so interesting. That's fascinating. <laughs> so when you started, uh, I guess when you branched, when you left the group and you started doing kind of some solo, pro- I mean, you always were collaborating with different artists and and doing a lot of different things. But when you started kind of focusing on your composing career, um, was there a... What, what, I guess what I guess what drove you there? What drove you to to continue writing music as a solo composer? And what what was your what's your love for film and, and visual kind of musical storytelling?
1: Well, I decided to leave Tangerine and Dream in uh, nineteen ninety, and yeah. uh, decided to move to L.A. In part because we'd done a bunch of tours, and tour prep was always in L.A., so I already knew the landscape and I knew a few people. It was just an easy uh, easy way to get started to get in and but I when I moved here I moved here because I was signed to private music on a record deal and the way they were dealing with young artists at the time or maybe they still do is they uh, they don't give you an advance they basically just uh, pay your living wages and and set you up uh, somewhere and so I I was doing that for about two years on the project with Peter Baumann, which then ended up going nowhere. But at the time, I was still in touch with Chris Franke, who, uh, uh, you know, I, I was with Intention and Dream in the first two years. Yeah, and he was doing a, a show called Babylon Five, and asked if I wanted to contribute on that show. And sort of as a side gig, um, I did that. And then I put out a bunch of solo records also around that time on another record deal. So the 90s for me was a transition period from the music world and then looking at the film side and say, oh, this is an additional uh, source of revenue. Uh, I knew the land, I knew what to do. It was easy to uh, uh, collaborate with Chris. And so that, started then paying the bills and right. it also piqued my interest more and more uh, then another friend introduced me to Graham Revell uh, that was a little bit sort of a bigger platform he even needed bigger films it wasn't a tv show it was like uh, uh, big stuff with orchestral recordings and I found that I really liked it so over a course of 10 years I said this was my third music education you know uh, was that first decade yeah. in in LA where I picked up on a lot of things. The music business was pretty much doing a nosedive. You know, it was this is when this mid-range dropped out, and it was either you're in the celebrity circuit, uh, mainstream, or you're an experimental musician that yeah. has to get an academic job or something, right? So um so one replaced the other in a way, and not just economically, but also in terms of interest. You know, doing these projects with Graham just showed me that. You can take advantage of the fact that every project is different and every project allows you some other experiment that you always wanted to do, but usually didn't have the funds to do. So let the projects pay for these uh, for these uh, adventures that you always wanted to have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, that's 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 so fascinating. and. I, um, so you mentioned kind of, uh, I know you mentioned that every project is different, but I'm always curious about like where the first, uh, just talk, I guess speaking about your process generally, not focusing on any specific project, but where does the first note usually come from for you? Do you usually like to, like what's I guess your go-to to start getting those first ideas out? Do you like to just play around with sounds and find a palette or find some uh, shape or something? Or do you like to find a little melody? Or do you like to uh, write a theme first? Or like, or do you sit and watch the first cut? Do you talk to the director? I'm curious, where do you go to, I guess, for kind of your, to start your whole process?
1: Um, I think a, a big part of uh, film scoring uh, or of, of our job is uh, kind of a, a conceptual grasp of the project. And for me, uh, the earlier that can happen, the better. So people that mm-hmm. I, I, uh, Regularly work with I, I usually hear about projects very early on, and the way I I tell them about it is um, I I compare it to an uh, putting an album together and having time uh, to try different ideas and let sort of the best stuff emerge rather than pre-formulating a concept, a musical concept. Um, What I do like to know uh, is what is the storytelling concept and what are we going after with this show? And the earlier that process can start, the earlier I can put that in the back of my mind, the better it will be for the end result. Um, Then usually when I have that first grasp, okay, this is what the project wants, Uh, this is what we're trying to do here, then I I generally like to throw paint against the wall and try a whole number of different things. And there is no, you know, I don't start with a particular instrument or or anything. It could literally be any sound or or any idea that I want to try out. Um, Keep in mind, though, that a lot of our ideas these days are combinations of aspects. They're not just melodic aspects or not just, progressions, often treatments, often a particular sound, and this particular sound will make you write or play a different way. So getting the sound or getting the sound aesthetic uh, is as important as finding these little uh, cells of of musical ideas um, in in developing this. And then, you know, this is something I, I also keep explaining to uh, filmmakers that I work with. It's okay to throw stuff away, you know? So if, if you do 10 experiments and you throw nine of the experiments away, but you find that one that clicks somehow, then it's a worthwhile process. And that's how I see the whole film scoring process: is You have to overproduce to get to the nuggets. Uh, you you sure. will with a, uh, you know, uh, focusing too early i think uh, uh cuts out a lot of other options
0: right and it probably also eliminates like the the what if question later like oh maybe th- what if we did this it would have been better but if you tried everything you you thought of in the time then you're like we already tried that it doesn't work this works the best for the film probably i'm guessing
1: <laughs> yeah and you know it's a it's a team effort also and one thing i learned very early i had my i had some of my biggest insights into film scoring uh from music editors and music supervisors yes. because the it's much easier for them to change the angle so to speak you know as as a composer you it's quite easy to get stuck in a certain perspective and and some of the most impressive people i've worked with were able like in an instant you know just to show me this other perspective that then changes it completely you also <laughs> have filmmakers like uh, let's say um, Sam Levinson who comes already with a whole musical concept. That's yet another uh, option that's out there that you have more and more younger filmmakers that already come with a substantial knowledge about production, about how something should sound, how something should be applied. Um, and uh, it has nothing to do with uh, classical music uh, terms. It has everything to do with production effect, uh, music video references. Uh, you name it; it's all in there.
0: Yeah. No. Absolutely. So uh, I, I do want to uh, jump into maybe talking some of uh, uh, just a few projects that I really love and would love to talk to you about. And then we'll end up talking about the YouTube effect, uh, the YouTube effect, which is your your most recent score, but. I want to go back to Crazy Beautiful because that was, I think, your first like solo. Uh, was that your first solo, like composing endeavor, like after Tangerine Dream, or was there something else before that?
1: It was one before that called Cheaters, same director. John oh, that's Stockwell. right, Cheaters. Yeah, John Stockwell. Yeah. So you and John have
0: worked on a couple of projects now. So when you first and you know did it by yourself and you don't have like a group to kind of lean on, were you? nervous at that time or did you already kind of build up the confidence in yourself to be like i i i I can handle this or was there any kind of self-doubt that you had to overcome when you started working by yourself
1: (laughs) um not really because remember at the time i i already have had been through the ringer with graham uh oh that's right on, on quite a few big projects and the nice thing about doing this kind of assisting slash uh co-arranging ghostwriting gig is that you get a first row seat but you don't have the political pressure. You're not as exposed. Sure. You, you get to just uh, focus on the production side, which is complicated enough and big enough learning curve, but you also witness what the composer is dealing with and how he's dealing with it. I, yeah. I remember on one project I was on uh, a scoring stage and I witnessed um, uh, it, uh, I think it was a choir recording. And uh, the director, after one take, walked over to Graham, said, you know, love the choir. And after the next take, the producer came from the other side and whispered in his ear, I hate the choir. So that, <laughs> you know, that uh, in two seconds is sort of your your education in film scoring or the politics yeah. of film scoring where You then have to deal with that uh, situation in one form or another. So when I started, I was very much aware of all these mechanisms. Uh, I've always had an easy time communicating or understanding communication. So it wasn't... that big of a jump to uh to do cheaters or or any of the following films? Uh did I still have to learn a lot? Yeah, absolutely. You know, sure. yeah, you yeah. never done learning. <laughs> right.
0: Well when you started with John as your director and and I know you did Crazy Beautiful and then some other stuff. I and mean, then you you worked with other directors as well. I'm curious as a composer, what you know, what made what made John a great director to work with? What made you coming back to work? What made you want to come back to work with him? Was it as a composer, what kind of communication skills are you looking from your director, do you like to be given a lot of firm direction? Do you like to just be given little ideas and kind of go off and do you know, as you say, kind of st- throw throw paint against the wall and then come back with ideas? I'm curious what if you could like you know kind of a, for other directors or maybe like looking to work with a composer, what are some the best the best traits a director could have to uh, communicate with their composer?
1: I think with John, uh, this wasn't his first film, but it was his first film in the in the public's uh, perception. You know, it was an HBO yeah. project and um, he was a young gun. You know, he was in his early 20s, first uh, major film. And um, as all young guys who come into this, uh, you know, you're bored with the status quo and you wanna do it in a different, uh, with a different vibe, a different energy. And your references are usually in popular music more than in in classical music. It was the same with Len Wiseman on Underworld, by the way. Um, uh, All I needed to convey to them is that I'm with them. You know, I'm like, I want the same thing. I've also (laughs) been bored with the old stuff. I've also uh, been annoyed how uh, traditional most of the stuff is. So if you want to do it different, I'm 150% with you on this. And... um, and I think he had uh, he had tamped the opening of *Cheetahs* with uh, a Chemical Brothers track, oh, and yeah. uh, and he said, uh, you know, I I want that, but with a little bit more energy. And this is what I uh, what you hear in the film actually. Opening is the demo that I submitted for it, so I was able oh, to wow. to deliver that sort of on point and. In his eyes and in HBO's eyes, that's sort of what uh, got me uh, through the door because of obviously they were nervous to have a first time director and a first- time solo composer uh, on the same project.
0: Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> well, I have a few, yeah, I have a few a project that we can jump. we could sit here and probably talk for hours about all of your entire filmography. but I want, to also point, I want to point out Crank, because I thought Crank was such a unique, like, I mean, everyone would talk about the film when it came out, just, it was just kind of this almost, you know, over the top, just craziness. And I'm curious, when you have to, when a, a film is, has that energy, for you, what was the process like to match that energy uh, musically?
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, this was also Lakeshore, uh, same company that did Underworlds, um, and so it, it, there are any first-time directors again one of them uh brian taylor was uh, a musician so there's a lot they already brought to the table and how this is supposed to to be Um, the challenge with crank was that they the movie was pretty much conceived from a rock and roll perspective um, but it was cut in kind of a Guy Ritchie, uh, you know, fast cuts and lots of cuts way. Yeah. So the challenge was then, it, so you couldn't just go in and record a band, have them have the right attitude and and then match the score. You had to do something electronic to have this ability to edit and fine edit and frame accurately edit some of this stuff and so it was uh the challenge was to maintain the attitude while exercising a fully electronic uh production today this would be a lot easier simply because what you can do in the box is so much better the quality of the plugins and the treatments everything would would be a lot easier but at the time it was it was tough to get both you know get the yeah. uh, maintain the attitude but have it really frame accurately, hit all the cuts that it needed to hit, but still a fun project.
0: Yeah, no, it's a fun film, too. It's, and another really fun film that's also over the top that is honestly one of my personal favorites. I always tell people to go check it out, shoot them up. And I think that movie's so underrated, and your scores is, is just so fantastic. I mean, it's live action, action, Looney Tunes. I mean, it's just like kind of bonkers. But and Clive Owen is fantastic for that. Was it? similar in that you're trying to match this high intensity? Or what was, I guess, comparing to Crank or something like that, what would be the difference with Shoot'em Up versus like Crank in terms of your approach and the process? Uh,
1: the difference was that New Line actually gave me a budget and oh. allowed me to do this non-orchestral. Um, because originally, uh, the plan for Shoot'em Up was to do it orchestral, to do like a John Powell, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith type uh, score for it. And um, but then New Line and the producers thought maybe it should lean a little bit more modern and uh, and be less standard. And uh, when I started discussing with them, I said, "Well, give me the budget, but let me actually go with a bunch of musicians into a studio and track stuff, and we do it yeah. early in the process. So um, we will then adapt." These recordings for the for the film. So I was basically one step further than Crank. In mean, Crank, I didn't have this time frame, but here it was right. early enough that we went to a studio. Um, I basically hired uh, Justin Meldal Johnson, uh, bass player, producer, uh, played with Beck and everybody at Nine Inch Nails. You know, pretty much any band in L.A., Justin has played with at some point. but. He then became sort of the, the musical director and put a band together, Joey Warenka, Jason Faulkner, uh, and then a bunch of guys that I often have worked with, Steve Tavallone, Pete Mano. And we converged on the studio and did one week of tracking. It was similar to Tommy Newman's approach at the time. I also went with the band and basically pre-tracked the film and then adapted stuff as the film was being uh, fine cut and and finally locked and so um it it kind of worked out you know It it yeah. we were able with these recordings and then i had a bunch of individual players come to my studio and track individual parts but all the band stuff was pretty much recorded in just uh one week oh wow
0: <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> I love shoot up. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's such a fun film and I feel like something like that wouldn't get made today, but it's just like my brother and I we just would watch that thing on a loop. It was fantastic. <laughs> um, And I, yeah, so you, so you mentioned underworld too. I want to touch on the underworld series. You know, that, that series has, you know, has so many fans and, you know, has built kind of a franchise out of itself. So what, what was it like working on a series that, you know, kept coming back and you got to kind of evolve your sound and evolve the music across several films Was that, uh, uh, Really creatively rewarding for you to just kind of be able to follow those, you know, that character and the stories, and and kind of flesh out that musical world.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm extremely grateful to the franchise, you know, because it it really the first Underworld movie, kind of, you know, the the first few years when you're working here, uh, you're not really established. You're still right. sort of in this in this trial uh, purgatory and. Yeah. And people say, "Oh, you know he's got a few uh, cool things to say. Let's see if he lasts, right?" And right. I think for me, underworld was three years after cheaters. It was that critical point where you either have to show a certain level of of success or impact or not. and And underworld definitely did that for me. It established me and uh, allowed them to relax a little and say, "Okay, I don't have to be." Uh, worried about finding the next gig, um, so it was a crucial uh, little project. Um, you know the, the irony about Underworld. Uh, again, I was not an established composer when I got that gig. Um, it was the old it was a big-looking movie on a small-looking budget. Yeah. So they they didn't just. Uh, you know, hand me the the key to the castle and say, do whatever you want. It's like, here's a budget and see what you can do with this budget. It was clear that we couldn't do a full orchestra. So, uh, so I ended up going to Germany. Uh, They were mixed. The dub mix was in Munich. So I, I booked the studio on a lake outside Munich. One of the few studios at the time had a big SSL console and uh, and I did partial tracking, meaning I had a small string group for a few days and I had a small brass group for a few days and the score became sort of this hybrid of uh, recorded parts or pre-recorded parts and then these uh, live tracked ensembles. Ironically, 20 years later, we look at this and this has become sort of now, uh, a pattern, a quite popular pattern, is that you do sort of the bigger orchestral parts program because you have more control, but you have the smaller individual parts separately tracked, sort of the big and small uh, approach. At the time, I didn't think about it creatively. I just made ends meet. You know, I had yeah. a certain uh, budget available, and in that budget, I could realize this, and it became this hybrid between between program electronic uh, sample libraries and, and these live track parts. Ironically, also the first time, uh, I think that VSL uh, was used in a, in, in a proper project. You know, they had just released their first libraries. So uh, I'm of course maintaining good relations with them to this day, but I think I was the first one that used VSL in the delivery of a score.
0: Wow yeah i mean that's also it's also that technique is now i know a lot of composers still do that if they're working because there's i feel like the the kind of that mid-range film is maybe coming back a little bit but that like the mid-range budget film kind of disappeared for a while you had just giant blockbusters and then like two million dollar you know indie like genre pieces and i know a lot of composers especially you know who just don't have those budgets they will do that they'll just you know we'll get a little bit we'll just do a small group and then the rest is samples and, and libraries like that so like, I just mm-hmm. talked to a composer who worked on his uh, kind of very small budget uh, disaster movie, like Tornado Movie, and he wanted to capture that old Amblin sound. Of Corey Wallace, he did a, a supercell, and he was like, oh, yeah, we were able to get that big kind of 90s, 80s, 90s, you know, John Williams, Alan Silvestri sound, you know, but do it on a very small budget. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah, yeah te- technology is crazy. I mean, it's it's allowing a lot more uh, people to to do stuff, yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's applied knowledge. Um, You know, uh, you have an incredible amount of technology available, but if you don't know what to do with the technology or if you don't know what to do with particular aspects of sample libraries, then it's it's not going (laughs) to translate. But if you do, then you can cheat quite a few things, both with sound treatments, and with uh, sort of uh, musical effect that something has, because if you focus on the effect rather than how it's made, there are two different things, you know, and this is sort of forever a debate in, in the film scoring or also in the sample library community. Is it, yeah. is it, are we replacing what's actually happening in the orchestra or are we replacing the effect that's at the end of everything that they do? And those right. are two, two different schools, and everybody has to pick what works better for them. For me, it's been a hybrid. You know, I need to know what the orchestra is doing and what the individual player is doing. But I have to also be able to switch uh, perspectives and look at it from the other side and say, at the end of all this process, what's the effect that it's now having in the telling of this story?
0: Yeah. Wow. that's yeah absolutely no yeah You got to tailor it to whatever process works you know everyone wants to get to the same to the same point but it's and every, everybody's different everyone has a different process um uh before we jump into the youtube effect i do want to talk about fear the walking dead which was also really fantastic and you got to work on this tv series that was a spin off of course of the main series but you know getting to do a score like that across several seasons of television what was the process like for you was it uh, once you kind of found the sound of the series, was it easy to just kind of evolve it across several seasons, or did it was it kind of a challenge to find something that was unique to this, compared to what Bear was doing with the the main series?
1: Um, yeah, the, the the starting point for Fear was that they wanted a little bit more industrial approach for it. And uh Gayla and Herb, by the way, uh, uh, is not only the producer of the uh, original Fear, um, uh, the original The Walking Dead, uh, also Fear and also YouTube Effect. So there's a there's connection that runs through all of them. Um, I was actually up for The Walking Dead when they first uh, started working on that show because At that point, there was already a thought to make it more industrial. And with industrial, I mean sort of what Tran and Atticus do in that in a general wheelhouse. Sure. Yeah. And and so when when fear came about, they said they now want to try this. You know, they now want to try the more industrial um, approach, more produced electronic um, and keyed off of that uh, language. Um, it is obviously a, a political minefield uh, to work on a show that's the spin off of another show that's super yeah. popular uh, and a lot of uh, players involved. And uh, I have to honestly uh, say that uh, I found. Uh, Production of a of a successful sound makes for fear almost impossible. Because of yeah. the political composition of the team, because of what happened on the stage and how the stage team was selected. It was the most challenging and ultimately also most unsatisfying uh, experience I've had in my entire career uh, was wow. the, the the mixing uh, of uh, Theater Walking Dead. And it's something I, I regret, but it is also part of the job, you know, and it's sure. something everybody who uh, starts working in this field has to realize you can't always uh get your ideas delivered in the way that you think uh, is most effective um nevertheless it's always a bummer
0: yeah and it was a was it just because of the of studio politics or was it because of the tv schedule as well was it like because i'm sure you were under a crazy amount of pressure to get everything done with the episodic you know uh television schedule or was it just studio politics was a mess or i'm just curious yeah (laughs)
1: I think it was mostly that the people tasked with the sound. This is not just the composer, you know, there's a sound yeah. supervisor, there's a mixer, there's uh, sound editors, whatnot. That group was not matched well and it needed a strong, it needed sort of a, a, a Sam Levinson kind of voice in the room that says, everybody, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I loved working with Dave Erickson, the showrunner. Uh, he's a great guy. Uh, but he's also a writer. So his main focus naturally was do the lines work? Is it the right lines? Is it the right performance? Uh, is the story being told the right way? And then also we have music. Um, but for me, obviously, music is like does the music work? Is that's up and then? Is right. All that stuff. So, so I don't think he, uh, he, he, wanted to negotiate and compromise uh, on the sound side. And I think sometimes that is possible in a lot of cases, actually, it's possible, but sometimes the discrepancy is so strong that you would need to redirect and you would need to actually push through uh, a sound aesthetic. It's funny because I I talk with Atticus Ross on and off um, and he tells me, Every project, the first two or three episodes, they're on the dub stage and they're having these big discussions and they just keep explaining to me it has to sound a certain way. If it doesn't sound yeah. a certain way, then it's not gonna work, it's not effective. And it's a it's a big uh to-do, and they usually are able to push it through. But in the case of fear, I was not able, I didn't have the the political power attached to me to really push to an aesthetic that i thought would have been right for that show
0: but, right
1: you know you win some you lose some but this was a big yeah. one to to not get right
0: <laughs> yeah yeah no that's, that's always sad to hear but yeah it, it people i think forget that yeah it's such a, a it's not just writing the music it's part of the mix you know it's part of everything else that you're competing with whether this, the sound effects dialogue everything the way it sounds and the way it's mastered and mixed it's just like uh, yeah it's so much goes into it and it can all i know composers like yeah it just gets to that point and then you lose control of it and you, whatever's in the final film you're like that's not what i intended <laughs> at all. <laughs> so yeah yeah it is part of it what you'll win some you lose some absolutely um so let's jump to uh the youtube effect which is uh this a uh, fantastic documentary and he got to work with uh director alex winter uh, focusing kind of on the impact of what YouTube is doing to society, uh, not just social media in general and, and like that. So what talk to me about, I, I, I as we know how you got the project because of your, your producer over here, but uh, I'm curious when you first, I guess, met with Alex and started talking and what did, what were the first conversations about music and what did you end up, you know, really wanting to accomplish with the score here?
1: Um, the first conversations were basically the fact that they knew they needed an electronic composer. And then Tracy McKnight was the music supervisor on the project, and Tracy and I are old friends, and uh, and she brought me up. I sent in a comp, and and then they all said, okay, that's the, that's the guy um, who should score this. It was a very, you know, I was interested in the project, and they were interested in me, and it was sort of like a, a pretty straight shot from that. Um, what really attracted me was that YouTube, um, as a platform, you know, uh, is very influenced by what happened before in music video. And yeah. I, I also, you know, I've always liked the these cross relations between music video, graphic novels and movies or storytelling um, in films and TV. And so this seemed like another extension of that. Um, and uh, you know I'm also personally a, a big fan of of Adam Curtis and his style of documentary filmmaking, which is very often uh, containing these uh, these different aspects. and uh, And I understood that if you bring a lot of small individual parts uh, together and tell this story of uh, evolution of uh, YouTube, you will need connective tissue, and but this connective tissue needs to be in line with what people normally expect on YouTube or in music videos or in this kind of platform. It's very a d d yeah, um so uh it needed kind of an a d d approach, but also the glue, and to do all of this in a way that the audience doesn't notice. That I'm doing this um, was kind of the the challenge, and uh, and what really piqued me about the project, you know, is uh, this could be really cool, and it gives you license, you know. Uh, they kept some of the original sound, but in a lot of cases, when you see people dancing or uh, these bigger sequences, it's actually me supplying the music uh, for some for some of these uh, uh, transitions, and and pretty exciting. Uh, thing so yeah. I, I got to wear you know four different hats which is sort of how I like to work anyway from producer to choreographer to <laughs> yeah. to performer and uh, and this seemed like the perfect fit and it, it turned out it, it was you know it was a real blast and I kind of had a feeling I mean I, I love Tracy and I love Gail and uh, I'd never worked with Alex before but from the first communication it was sort of yeah, it's cool he's on the same page again Is someone yeah. who doesn't like the status quo and and likes to go into different corners then long bander was mixing it was really sort of a, a little bit of a dream team uh from my perspective
0: yeah that sounded that sounds amazing and alex i think is such a, a underrated uh, filmmaker as well i think a lot of you know people know him from bill and ted and as an actor but his directing is is fantastic and, the, and this documentary is so timely and, and just fascinating as well so but as as a composer, was it? Uh, I feel like documentaries you have to, you can't do, you can't be like, I guess, too manipulative or too, you know, pushing or too kind of guiding the hand. It, was it? Was it hard to find a balance of tone and how much your the music was working, or was it kind of very natural to feel where the music was going to be and and all that? Uh,
1: again, I think you uh, you key off of documentaries you know i'm bored with about 90 percent of documentaries you know and and there's certain traps that documentaries tend to fall in a there's too much talking uh b it's sort of the the storytelling itself is sort of not they're trying to tell the case but not the story they don't make it into a good story um and um you know, because I mentioned Adam Curtis and Adam Curtis documentaries, sometimes you have five minutes without talking at all. He just basically puts yeah. uh, found footage together and, uh, you know, choreographs it like an art film or something. So I've always liked this different approach. Um, and it seemed believable, you know, with Alex that he would also like that, you know, he would like uh, something where we're, talking about the vibe of the track rather than is that the right three notes for the main theme or something. Right. And uh, based on that, it was a very enjoyable uh, process. It's all It was very close to pop music in a way, you know, the effects of pop music, uh, which is all something I've always enjoyed uh, getting into that world and, and playing with that world. And last but not least, I could involve my old friend, John Tejada, have known forever um and uh and pulled them into three tracks including the the opening track and that was just i mean john and i had never worked together before but we've known each other as friends and as musicians for uh, 20 plus years or something so it was just like this would be perfect if john got involved here and and so it was so um I I hope we can find more such opportunities. But in terms of dream team or or a dream uh, selection of people involved, he sort of put another one on there. You know, where he said this is this is almost too good to be true.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> well, yeah, congratulations on on the on the film. It's it's fantastic, and uh, I know that uh it's a, kind of a smaller movie so I hope people seek it out you know it's one of those movies you're gonna have to go seek out and 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 it says a lot of great things that are very pertinent today and I'm just curious uh as a composer and I, I know when YouTube came out it was kind of this uh big conversation because of people using copyrighted music and now they have the whole you know licensing thing where you if you upload something it'll start pulling the revenue from YouTube but I'm curious as a composer what what in your point of view, what is YouTube's, I guess, role today, especially if you're looking at it as a platform for musicians or composers like yourself that utilize it to promote their own stuff versus all the other? I mean, YouTube is a whole mess of things we get into, but I'm, I want to get it from the perspective of a composer who uses YouTube or maybe other social media platforms to promote their their work. Uh,
1: I can't give you, a, I cannot give you a simple answer to that <laughs> question. Um, okay. I can admit that I'm conflicted about uh, YouTube as I'm conflicted about Spotify,
0: yeah, because both yeah, are
1: platforms that you know I use uh for research constantly yeah. like I, I I really rely on these platforms, and at the same time, they are example for the digital side of the business running amok a little bit. And they, yeah. eventually they make concessions and they start paying. But the truth is that we're still in a post Napster kind of reality. And these are big players in that world. And uh, so there's there's a lot to be critical about. I mean, the YouTube effect itself is, is critical about it. And yet we have to acknowledge it's part of our world today. Uh, we're not going to turn back the time on it. What we can try to do is make a, a joint effort to manage it better or to put a few rules in there that that start compensating people the right way. Uh, I think it's a, it's a long road to get there, but yeah. you can either just give up or try something, and I'm always in favor of, of uh, trying something. Um, the the time that these companies happen, you know um, is also a time of of very short attention spans of a different type of energy and information distribution, uh, which interestingly, you know it to me, uh, as someone who's done a few rounds here, it reminds me a little bit of the early days of of personal computing right. um yeah. Uh, it's for me sort of a, a triple circle, if you will, in that I've experienced that time. I came up during that time. Then I did Halt and Catch Fire, which basically a re-examination of that time. And now I did the YouTube effect, which is kind of round two of that re-examination. Again, it has a lot of sort of outspoken electronic musical elements. And uh, it's curating a certain uh, style in a new version that fits with um, with YouTube, with this general subject. But I could string a straight line from my first dabbling on an Atari to Halt and Catch Fire to the YouTube effect. They sort of belong yeah. together and somebody who liked the Halt and Catch Fire score will likely like this uh, YouTube effect score.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And no, I, I agree with you 100%. It is... Very conflicting, and YouTube is it allow. I mean, what we're what we're talking right now is going to be on YouTube. Like it's like it it is the platform that I use to reach you know, other people who are interested in film music and and movies and all that stuff. And it's and it allows voices to be heard, but it also when you throw in all the big things of of algorithms and the way it has an impact on society and and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a very complicated kind of <laughs> nest and mess a maze of messes to to kind of un- unpack especially when it comes to royalties especially for sure for for music and and, uh, and usage of other you know other clips and stuff like that absolutely um but uh to to wrap to kind of wrap up our conversation i, I want to talk just briefly about uh your recent uh solo album exit ghost 2 which i absolutely love which is a follow-up to exit ghost and i just wanted to touch base on that because it's i'm curious about how your process differs when you're creating kind of a uh, an album uh, that's not tied to picture. It's just you know you're creating your music, your soundscapes, and I love just putting that on, closing my eyes and just kind of letting the the sound just take me wherever. So I'm curious how you conceptualize an album like that, and how do you create that album experience for the listener that is completely different from writing you know, writing to picture?
1: Um, in the best, uh... In the best world for me it would be similar to uh you know when you watch a film or you you watch a sequence of images um you're being told an interpretation of the story right right um and specifically if you've read the book before you know that this is just one of quite a few possible interpretations of, or or ways to tell this story right? and and um, And so, when I do the album or the the musical work, um, what I hope is gonna happen is that then the story plays out in people's heads. You're not dictating the story. Uh, You let them, you set them off and and let them explore their own story. Um, I think, you know this. I I hate this label, cinematic music, and and uh, it sounds like film It's 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 starting to be also a, a derogatory term. You know, oh, it's yeah. just film music. Um, and you know, then they played around with neoclassical, which is equally awful. And now they found the more uh somewhat okay modern composition, but uh really there shouldn't be a label for it. You know, it should yeah. just be called new music and leave it at that. But right. um but I think you know, uh, it's interesting what I said originally about the elusive uh, character of music and the reframing of music. I think this uh, this continues to go on. And if you know about historical, a little bit about music history, uh, you know that the context that music was written in is always different than uh, the context of when it's perceived. Uh, Bach was pretty much uh, a forgotten composer until uh, a bunch of uh, music obsessives in Vienna started a little society and played music to each other that they discovered somewhere. Uh, There was a certain gentleman, Baron von Swieten, who who started this whole thing. Mozart was part of this circle and uh, had a great part in the rediscovery of Bach. But it was a different, even though it was only uh, 40 years after Bach's death, it was a different time and a different perception. So multiply this 500 times, um, and you know that uh, music has a certain relevance now, and it will have a different relevance 20 years from now. So all I can do is, as somebody who's putting out music, I want to make sure that for what it's worth, the relevance now is what I want it to be. And I can say this is in some way a reflection of my experiencing these times. Now, the Exit Ghost albums came out right around the pandemic. So yeah. <laughs> it's in a way, it became my diary of of things that I perceived pre and, and during pandemic. And it just, so it wasn't planned this way. It, it, it just so happened. But it feels to me like this is a... Uh, for me at least, relevant uh, musical statement to this time period, you know, I didn't, I don't want to put out museum pieces where I'm saying, uh, and this ultimately uh, is why classical music has limited uh, appeal to me, is because I'm representing something uh, in a different context, can you still do that in a great way, absolutely, can I do it? No, I don't yeah. have the talent for this uh, side of the of the music industry. Um, but, um, you know, as a creator, I think your responsibility is that if you listen back to it and you say, does this relate to what my field of reality has been in the last few years, in the last decade, then the answer has to be yes. If it's not, then you're just stylizing it out of context um so these these albums are kind of personal expression and past that test for me if, it, if they do yeah. it for other people i don't know but
0: yeah well it, it doesn't it for me i mean it, for me it's a it's a it's an, it's an experience itself and i think that's just the way you create soundscapes and your aesthetic and the way you 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 find sounds and create these you know movements and an emotional journey and emotional narrative and through that it, it it left an impact on me and I just, I really enjoyed it. So I, I love those, oh, those albums a lot <laughs> and I love your work a lot. So yeah, Paul, thank you uh, so much for taking the time this evening to, to sit down and chat. Uh, I have wanted to talk to you for such a lot, long time. So it's uh it's so great to, to have you as a guest. And I really appreciate all your insight and perspective. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. And uh, yeah, I hope we can continue the conversation. I have that with a lot of people that, uh, you know, we, we have these, uh, uh, we have these conversations that go on, and yeah. uh, by the next time you talk, you're basically continuing the same conversation where you left off to the previous. Exactly. Time. Oh yeah. yeah Every because, time I, yeah. Uh, we we won't run out of, uh, of material or or stuff to talk about for some time. <laughs> Absolutely I agree with that. <laughs>